So the first one I want to share is this one. Um, in the Dharma talk yesterday, you mentioned COVID, the fires, smoke, and the upcoming election as things that are heavy on our minds. I was really hoping you were going to bring up racial inequality with regard to police brutality and murder of black people as one example. The current reckoning on these systems is definitely taking up space in my mind and heart. Would you be willing to comment on that? The answer is yes, 100%. Um, and I actually had planned to say a few words this weekend about a book recently written by Ruth King, an insight meditation teacher who is African-American. The book is called Mindful of Race. And I highly recommend it. And as a matter of fact, I would, I would urge the Open Way Sanghas to consider reading and discussing this book together. If you need any extra support that I can offer, I volunteer. Um, the book has a lot of good stuff in it and should be savored slowly. So I would recommend reading or spending four to six weeks in small groups like five or six people. I myself took <clears throat> four weeks to read it and only finished it the day it was due back at the library. And it's not a super long book, but it's just so um, full of, of really important insight and practice. It's the one thing I really appreciated about it is how um, not only mindfulness informs are looking deeply into race, but also how our, our racial, the manifestations of our racialized society can inform us as mindfulness practitioners. There are many passages in it that I found helpful, but um, what stood out the most for me very personally is this one sentence. Um, she says, in the United States, many of our ancestors experienced much abuse for the right to vote, insisting on participating in a system that was never made with them in mind. Insisting on participating in a system that was never made with them in mind. That resonates for me, I think, because for myself, a big part of the difficulty in taking on systemic violence is basically the fear of being attacked or deprived of basic needs and the fear that these multiple interlocking systems of exploitation care nothing about my experience and that they are simply insurmountable. These are the fears. These fears that I can get seriously injured and that I can't really make a difference in it anyway, <clears throat> point to the two perhaps most common reactions to any protracted crisis. They are on the one hand, high reactivity in the form of panic or rage. And on the other hand, collapsing into despair and resignation and hopelessness. And this applies as well to um, not just climate activism, but also situations of generational conflict or estrangement in our own families. 
with mindfulness and compassion, it can begin to explore the fears and the thoughts and beliefs that play out in my body and mind, and then look as well into the emotions and thoughts and beliefs that are likely driving the behaviors of others around. And this is why our teacher Tai used to say that any peace conference should begin with at least a few days of mindfulness practice, no negotiations at first. A teaching attributed to Viktor Frankl says that between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space is our power and our freedom. If we can take some time to dwell in that space, even if just for a few minutes, but hopefully longer, new insights, unimagined possibilities can emerge. A woman named Cristiana Figueres was the main force behind the Paris Climate Accords. And she said she never went anywhere without a copy of Tai's book, Love Letter to the Earth. So here she was faced with these 100 plus countries, all with very different priorities, some of which were quite industrialized and wanted to cut, cut, cut emissions, others that were still trying to secure basic needs, basic economic needs to their population. She had all of these countries to try and corral into a single global agreement. And she said what made it possible for her to succeed was Tai's inspiration to look at them all as one family and help them to see one another that way as well. And if we just stop for a moment here to think about some of the greatest leaders and catalysts of change in the last century or so, again, changes that seemed unimaginable before they actually happened, we may think of people like uh, Susan B. Anthony, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, Malala Yousafzai, all of these people I just named drew enormous strength and endurance as well as inspiration from meditative or contemplative spiritual practices. And all of them came up in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Is there any question? Is there any shadow of a doubt in anyone's mind that our beloved Thais blazing beacon fire has been fueled by his country's decades of mass dislocation, loss of life and suffering, or the Dalai Lama, or Gandhi, Dr. King or Rosa Parks, or Malala. So just one other thing on that subject, I would just add another book that I highly recommend be studied by every Sangha is by um, insight teacher Larry Yang. And his book is called um, Awakening Together. Also, I'm starting to get to know some of the work of the Zen priest, African-American woman, um, Angel Kyoto Williams. I think she has a lot to offer as well. I'm looking forward to learning more from her in the coming months. <clears throat> um, I'll just pause here for a sound of the bell.
had a few questions that came in or reflections about um, the different levels that we might be experiencing loss, difficulty, and fear on from the very close in personal levels to the community, national or global levels. Um, so one of them is this one. With the current divisiveness and inability to see the humanity of each other that exists in the world, I've struggled in my work and social life to find peaceful, inclusive ways to interact with others of differing views. I'm just like smiling to think of the very first mindfulness training of the 14 mindfulness trainings of the interbeing. It's non-attachment to views. Yeah. We learn to be with others of different views. He says, I'm not trying to change views, but simply meet people in a respectful space where we can find commonality and a solution to the conflict at hand where we both walk away with more appreciation for the other. I realize this is not always possible, but this is the ideal I hold in my heart. Um, she says, this comes up for me most with my parents. I generally avoid anything related to politics with them and have no desire to debate them for change. Rather, I feel that these topics are so divisive that we cannot be vulnerable with each other because of how they react if I talk about my life experiences. This leads me to the second area where I am engaging this topic. I work as a manager as per city and state mandate. We require everyone in the store to wear a mask. We have a small group of people who do not wish to wear masks for religious health or mental health issues. And they engage us frequently in an attempt to have the police called on them so they can be trespassed from the property. She says, I find this deeply troubling on a personal level when people have publicly and in person accused me of discrimination and such for upholding policies. <clears throat> on a larger scale, two of them have picked up wider backing one person is organizing to sue the store and some staff, including myself. And another is publicly calling for protests and releasing our personal addresses and contact info to their following. I know that my interest in peaceful communication will provide no help in these larger scale issues, except that I strongly feel we really need personal connection even just one second of mutual respect to transcend these times and our tendency to fight to the finish for our beliefs and values. It's hard. And many days I don't feel strong enough to hold this space. I believe that we all act, I'm still quoting the letter, I believe that we all act in the most logical way for us based on the thoughts and beliefs we're operating under. Sometimes I can understand them, but I lack insight on how to build a bridge to them. That bridge building and what follows is what I am looking to strengthen in myself.
So how is that for a portobello sandwich question? <laughs> Thank you for that. Such a powerful sharing. Um, there are three pieces here that I think are key in terms of practice. The first is simply acknowledging as, as the writer does that um, as one individual or even one household, there's only so much we can do. We do what we can. And it's very important to keep our compassion for ourselves very alive every day. You know, when we have such a monumental teacher as Tai, we may hold ourselves to a higher standard of heroism than is reasonable. I certainly have had to be conscious of that tendency in myself, which can be self-defeating rather than inspiring if we aren't conscious and careful with it. So we do what we can. And to the extent that we're longing for so much more connection than is possible in the moment with that person, there's grief that needs to be recognized and allowed and very tenderly, spaciously and regularly embraced. When we're threatened with harm in this digital age, there's a lot of vulnerability to embrace as well. That is our first practice. Um, I think last December at Kalispell, I spoke at Flathead Lake, um, I spoke about the pioneering research of Dr. Kristen Neff on mindful self-compassion. She actually was inspired to go down that road in her work after having practiced with the Plum Village Sangha that was right in her neighborhood. And for all of us dealing with overwhelming emotions of fear and anger and despair, I think very specific self-compassion practices are what is needed. You can find um, guided meditations by Dr. Neff on her site. I'm just going to put it in the chat, um, the link, if you want to um, explore that. It'll stay in the chat for the length of this talk, so you can jot it down later if you want. So then if other people are so filled with the suffering of fearful delusion or hostility and they're egging each other on in it so much that they really can't see you or hear you, the project of building a bridge is going to be a long-term one, right? Maybe it's a little bit like parenting children with special needs or defiant teenagers. Um, it takes not only a lot of compassion for ourselves and for the other person, but also a lot of patience and perseverance, as well as creativity, which we've had some opportunity to practice together on our own and together. Um, so first, it's important to take good care of your own body, mind, and heart, and not try to fix many big problems in a day or a week. Human conflicts and suffering have been happening from the very beginning of the, the species and probably a long time before that. It didn't start in our lifetime, and it isn't all going to end in it either. 
And we have the right to ask the Sangha for help and support and keep asking for it while we're dealing with being on the receiving end of aggression. And when you feel enough support and strength in yourself to then take a step, pick one or two people who you see might be open to connecting a little bit more from the heart and just let go of the rest for now. You may find the practice of reflective listening um, and other pieces of Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication to be helpful. He essentially teaches us how to not pay so much attention to the thoughts and opinions that a person is perhaps spewing and instead to listen for and acknowledge the feelings and the unmet needs that they're experiencing. And when we try to reflect them back in a sort of a friendly guess, what's interesting I found in that practice with nonviolent communication, it's not so important that your guess is right. It's more that they can feel you are really trying to meet them where they are and understand what's happening for them. And again, we need support to be able to do this. And what we're talking about here is Tai's own lifelong labor of love. And just please remember that he is with us in every single step. We'll pause again for another sound of the vowel. to that sense of the different levels that we're experiencing. Um, one person wrote, this year has been one of immense collective suffering and adaptation. We've experienced perhaps more fast paced change and large scale loss this year than in any other of most of our living memories. And in the midst of that collective experience, we all also continue to experience our personal sufferings and joys. And this person says, I almost feel like those are quieter out of necessity. For example, what is it to say we've experienced a deep personal loss when as a nation we're losing thousands of nameless to us, people per day to a virus? Or how do you express a great joy to a small group of friends who may be lost in the collective suffering and find it hard to celebrate anything right now. Another one on this theme, this person said, 
In addition to the big nationwide things we all are dealing with, I have two additional ones. My sister is dying of lung cancer that has spread to her brain, and my eyesight has gotten significantly worse. My practice is helping me, and I do deeply understand the impermanence of these things and know there is life on the other side. My question is about how we can shape the culture, the values, and the way we live to be more in line with our mindfulness training's view of the world as we make our way through this unique opportunity. And she says, many people are hoping things will just snap back to normal, but the earth could benefit from a new normal. And one more on this theme. A front and center issue in my practice in recent months or years has been that as I slog through what appears to be grief for situations in the world, I'm starting to wonder if a great deal of it isn't projections of my own unprocessed internal grief. Of course, there are many things about which to grieve out there, but the more I face my own historical personal losses, the less I feel dire about the external losses and the more open to the thought that we're in global labor pains birthing something better. In this incredible year, she says, of 2020, to what extent are we projecting unprocessed internal aggressions and griefs onto our interpretation of what's going on? So you can hear just the depth of the, of the presence and the exploration that this year is calling forth in us as practitioners. So when I reflected on these questions, this sort of collection of theme questions, the image that came into my mind is how we are all practicing already with a family or even our own body. So as Christiana Figueres, the climate change pioneer saw, we humans on this planet are one great extended family and the other forms of life as well. So in our own personal families and bodies, we have various needs and conditions that have to do with our surviving and our thriving in health and well-being. So these bodies need to have food to eat. These bodies need to have a shelter that protects us from cold and heat and smoke and predators. And then there's medicine, surgery, or other medical care, some of which may be necessary for us to survive, others without which we can survive but maybe not easily thrive, and still other kinds of medical choices that simply make the difference between whether or not we'll be able to go on skiing down a black diamond trail or just have to enjoy the medium difficulty trail. I was just thinking about skiing. So before I was a nun, I, I am not a downhill skier, but I worked in a large corporate office before I was a nun and I had a boss who was a very lovely, kind man. He was also very driven in his work and worried all the time. He told me 
the only time he could experience freedom from his ruminating worries and thoughts was when he was skiing down a very challenging trail and his life literally depended on his maintaining total focus and concentration on what was happening moment to moment right there in front of him and inside him. So what I'm saying here is that we are making choices right now already all the time, balancing the relative urgency as we experience it and costs and benefits of various things that we have to make choices about. And so it's, it's the same thing in a way with these other more um, kind of mental or emotional subjects that are flowing through these questions. We, we make choices, we sense kind of where, where the need is strongest, um, what we have the capacity to address and kind of what, what the priorities are. This is, this is very similar. And it's also really essential we not forget that uh, both as individuals and as families and as communities and a nation, we don't just only have needs, we also have resources. And again, you know, those can be quite varied, but we all have some kind of resource or we, we wouldn't be able to live. And that's a lot of what the Gathas practice is pointing us to. Just need to plug in my computer. Um, I thought I would just read Tai's very classic poem called Our True Heritage. Tai says, the cosmos is filled with precious gems. I want to offer a handful of them to you this morning. Each moment you are alive is a gem shining through and containing earth and sky, water and clouds. It needs you to breathe gently for the miracles to be displayed. Suddenly you hear the birds singing, the pines chanting, see the flowers blooming, the blue sky, the white clouds, the smile and the marvelous look of your beloved. You, the richest person on earth, who have been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child, come back and claim your heritage. Tai says, we should enjoy our happiness and offer it to everyone. Cherish this very moment let go of the stream of distress and embrace life fully in your arms. So we have to look and to know what our personal real resources and supports are and consciously call upon them, draw upon them many times every day. And the great thing about mindfulness practice on the different levels that these questions pointed to is whatever we practice, no matter where we practice it, gets stronger, right? So if we practice running away from our pain, then our tendency to divide and disown ourselves gets stronger. 
But if we practice embracing, pausing and embracing our pain, our grief, our vulnerability, our fear with this patient acceptance and compassion, our capacity to endure difficulty gets stronger. So whatever subject or area of our lives we bring mindfulness and deep looking to, that practice strengthens our neurological sort of muscle of mindfulness and makes it more available to us in dealing with any and all of the different levels, the different, the different things that are happening in us and around us. another sound of the bell. So one person said, I'm interested in the topic of hopelessness and how to stay in contact with basic goodness amidst current events. I'm a very optimistic person, yet even I have been finding that these times are getting me down. Um, And another person wrote similarly, How do we, as a collective, use our practice to remember that this is it? This moment is what we have. And the moment itself, she writes, may not be tainted with the great collective malaise we find ourselves in. And so how can we, or, and so can we keep from getting pulled under? And how can we do this, she asks without disengaging from the important and hard work that does need to be done personally and collectively. So um, for me, this points first of all to practicing, again, mindfulness of consumption. Um, We do need to be in touch with what's going on. Absolutely. But we don't need to be following every news flash several times a day or for two hours in the dark of night. I think probably if we choose our sources carefully, um, 15 minutes per day is probably enough to know what you need to know. You might feel even better if you save it for Sunday and read the news that has the benefit of a few days distance and perspective rather than this breathless, like breaking 24 hour cycle. I think that will have a lot to do with how we don't go into hopelessness and stay engaged. 
Um, two other very concrete recommendations I can offer you on this from my own personal practice. The first is um, consider getting a timer for the outlet, the electrical outlet where your internet router is plugged in and make it switch off well before your bedtime. Mine goes off at 9 p.m. And I find it so helpful, <laughs> really does help me. Um, and the other thing on this about consumption is to read. So, you know, limiting the, um, yeah, the clickbait, I guess. And on the nourishing side, to read biographies of people who have produced big, powerful, beautiful lotuses from really dark, sticky, putrid mud. Like I was saying earlier, right? And there are heroes and bodhisattvas all throughout the world. And not only the most famous ones, like Malala Yousafzai or Thurgood Marshall, but lesser known ones. Um, I read the memoir of a, someone named Jacques Lucerant, who was, as a blind teenager, he worked bravely and tirelessly for the French resistance in Paris during World War II. Or um, those farm boys in the book, Boys in the Boat, if any of you have read that, who became the first great uh, crew rowing team from the Western United States and went on to represent our country against the Nazi team in the Olympics at Berlin. Um, I mean, just considering that we humans have not been at the top of the food chain for all that long, evolutionarily speaking, it's just natural that we fall again and again into unconscious reactivity, both individually and societally. And the more we bear witness to these patterns, the more we get the first noble truth that there is suffering here, as well as the fourth noble truth about how pushing our suffering away makes us small and scared, then the more a space, paradoxically, that space that Viktor Frankl talks about, sort of alchemically, paradoxically opens up to become actually fertile ground as it was for these bodhisattvas, these living people. Fertile ground for a fresh, creative, original, unimagined response to come forward. So whatever it is that's generating stress for us, we can witness what manifests in our body and our mind with compassion. And then in that resourcing and that grounding and space that we open up by embracing it, then we can ask ourselves, how might this help bring about more awakening in myself and my community? How might even this painful, painful situation serve awakening in myself and in my community or my family? Where might the next lotus be germinating right this minute? And how can I help nurture it along with dedication and also with ease? Remember the next phrase that Ty says, 
after peace is every step, it turns the long road into joy. Turns the long road into joy. The next question I wanted to address, um, this one says, a question I've been contemplating for a long time came up again for me when you were talking about how we can always find a source of nourishment in the face of challenges. And this is, how can we offer that practice to someone who may be our own self, experiencing genuine trauma inflicted by others with greater power rather than simply perceiving that something in the world feels hard or unsatisfactory because of our own desires. The writer says, for myself, I'm aware that my privilege allows me to practice to gain insight into the misperceptions I might have about what I worry about or wish for and to adjust my view in a more realistic and healthy way. But what of the person who is subject to the trauma of violence and poverty, who has potentially fewer choices and resources to transform their very literal suffering? Isn't it unfair to ask them to do so without actually removing some of the source of their trauma? Um, and he says, I know this is a very involved, deep issue, but would be grateful for insight since it seems to very closely shape how to respond as an engaged Buddhist who does have a lot of privilege. Thank you for that question. Uh, so I mentioned Angel Kyoto Williams earlier, the Zen American, African-American Zen priest. She says, uh, she wrote this, it was in um, the Lions Roar magazine. No one who has ever touched liberation could possibly want anything other than liberation for everyone. She said, so if you ever run into a Dharma teacher who isn't saying this path is for all, if they would withhold liberation from anyone, it means they don't know what liberation is. They have not yet touched it. Now, with that being said, on the level of specific practices that we do today, do we recommend the exact same practice to a person in a situation of privilege and relative comfort as to someone living with insecurity around the most basic needs for survival plus ongoing daily full-blown trauma? No, we don't. A person who has gone without a meal for two days and not because they're doing some like Miami diet is not going to pay much attention to anything else until that need is fulfilled. You know, Ty was once in a museum uh, looking at a mummy and a little girl, maybe four or five years old, came into the room without her parents. She saw the mummy and she was shaken by the sight of a dead human body. And so she turned to Ty and she asked him, is that going to happen to me too? And Ty looked back at her and he said, no. 
and during the war in Vietnam, much of Thay's time and energy was devoted to setting up and running a volunteer social services program, building, rebuilding villages. We talked about that, I think, back at Flathead, building and rebuilding and re-rebuilding villages that had been bombed, creating schools, bringing food. But the social workers also had to come back to headquarters for one day each week to practice renewing themselves. They, they were able to do that. They had enough support. So the point here is that the Dharma always has to be appropriate. And most of the time, really, this is not a question of either or, or all or nothing. Um, you know, Thay taught that in Buddhism, we say there are three kinds of gifts we can offer. Material gifts, the gift of Dharma, and the gift of non-fear. So as engaged Buddhists, we want to look deeply and practice skillfully, appropriately to offer all of these in the right proportions at the right time for this person, for a person or a community. That's mindfulness. That's applied Buddhism. <laughs>